Please stay tuned for important disclosure information at the conclusion of this episode. Welcome to the Investing Insights Podcast for Morningstar. In this week's podcast, Susan Jabinski and Megan Patchlock discuss risk in Americans' target date funds. David Harrell and Travis Miller talk utility stocks. Christine Benz and Susan Jabinski share their insights into rising interest rates and retirement planning. And Dave Sicara discusses what rising interest rates mean for stocks and bonds. Let's get started. Here are Susan Jabinski from Morningstar, Inc. and Megan Patchlock from Morningstar Research Services. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. As the default option in many employer-sponsored retirement plans, target date strategies play important roles for many investors. We're therefore taking a deep dive into some of the largest target date providers. Today, we're diving into the target date series from American Funds with Megan Patchelock. Megan is an analyst with Morningstar's Global Multi-Asset Funds research team. Hi, Megan. Nice to see you. Nice to see you too, Susan. So let's start by talking about how big a presence American Funds is in that target date space. You know, how does it rank compared to, say, Vanguard or Fidelity? So American Funds, their total target date assets actually ranks fifth across the industry, and their market share, including both their mutual fund and CIT offering, is about 7 to 8%. Now, American Funds offers just one series that features actively managed funds. Is that right? That's correct. And then why, why does it offer just the one series when many providers offer more than one? Um, it's a way for them to really put their best thinking f- forward in terms of saving for retirement and also a way for them to feature their standout underlying funds. So, Megan, tell us a little bit about what are some of the things that Morningstar likes about the series and what do we rate it? American Funds Target Date Retirement Series earns a Morningstar Analyst Rating of Gold, which is actually our highest conviction rating. One thing that we really like about this series is the underlying funds. The underlying active equity funds, most of them earn a Morningstar medalist of gold or silver, again, showing our high conviction in those strategies. But one thing we also like about it is the way that those active equity funds are interacting with their active bond funds. So those bond funds are actually providing a lot of capital preservation in terms of those equity drawdown. So it's really a smart match for that series. And then are there things that investors um, who invest in this series should be aware of, maybe some things that make this series different from the series of some other providers? So this series actually has a strong overweight to large cap equities. And um, that has done that has contributed well for its long-term success because it is one of the best longer-term performing series. Um, however, if things were to shift and small caps were to rally for an extended period of time, that could be a bit of a headwind for this series. Well, Megan, thank you so much for your insights into the American Funds Target Date series today. We appreciate it. Thanks for having me, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. Expand your investing horizons and look to the long term with Morningstar's podcast, The Long View. Join hosts Christine Benz and Jeff Patak as they talk to influential leaders in investing, advice, and personal finance. Search for and subscribe to The Long View today. Now, here is David Harrell from Morningstar Investment Management with Travis Miller from Morningstar Research Services. I'm David Harrell, editor of Morningstar Dividend Investor Newsletter. And I'm here today with Travis Miller from Morningstar Equity Research. So you are a utility strategist for Morningstar Equity Research. So can you talk a little bit about your role and Morningstar's coverage of utility stocks? Sure. So we have two primary utilities analysts, myself and my colleague, Andrew Bischoff. We cover the 39 largest utilities, publicly traded utilities in the U.S. and Canada. 
recently hired, which is really exciting, hired a clean energy analyst. He doesn't okay. work directly with us, but certainly we share a lot of ideas and a lot of insight. And he covers primarily the solar companies, other clean energy investment firms. Uh, it's really a, a potpourri okay. of coverage, but it's real, really good to have him on board. And then we also have a European utilities analyst who covers the largest European names. So we have a good crew, cover uh, all the developed countries, and uh, but here in the U.S., Andrew Bischoff and I cover about 39 of okay. the largest. Got it. So um, in the headlines today, we've seen a lot about inflation. And obviously, uh, in addition to the humanitarian crisis that Russia's invasion of Ukraine has caused, uh, we're seeing economic fallout uh, mm -hmm. with higher commodity prices and supply chain disruptions that could potentially push inflation rates, which are already quite high, even higher. Uh, now, you and your colleague, Andrew, recently published a report on utilities and inflation. Can you explain why this sector is particularly vulnerable to higher inflation rates? Sure, yeah. We've had, like you say, a confluence of events here mm -hmm. that really nothing good comes of it when you're a utility. Inflation, higher interest rates, even the defensive nature of utilities, when you have an, a situation like Ukraine and Russia where it's hitting energy prices, that right. also is not good for utilities. So we've got uh, really, really a tough situation, both fundamentally and for investors right now in utilities. For inflation in particular, a couple of key reasons why utilities are really at a disadvantage when you have high levels of inflation. One is energy costs are a huge portion of the utility bill mm -hmm. for all customers. So as we've seen, one of the biggest drivers of inflation here in the last three months has been energy prices. Mm -hmm. To the extent that energy prices are flowing through customer bills, customer bills are higher because of energy prices, utilities make less money mm -hmm. on the portion of the bill that covers their capital operating costs. So that's one primary uh, disadvantage. The second on a more fundamental basis is operating and capital costs are huge for utilities. It takes a lot of capital and a lot of people and a lot of materials to run the electricity, gas, and water networks in the U.S. and really worldwide. Mm -hmm. When we looked at the data, the average utility spends 70% of net revenue, so this is essentially gross margin, after yeah. accounting for energy costs, 70% of their costs are either maintenance capital or operating costs, materials, labor, and just keeping the system operating. So huge amount of capital and operating costs when materials prices go up, when labor costs go up, that hits a huge portion of the cost structure for utilities and obviously hits earnings and ultimately the dividends. Okay. And um, as you wrote about it in the report, it's difficult uh, for utilities relative to other industries to pass those increased costs on to their customers. Yeah. The, the structure of driving revenue for utilities, essentially customer rates, runs through state and sometimes federal regulators. So the utility has to petition regulators, either at the state or federal level, to raise those rates. That becomes a much more political process when customers are seeing their utility bills rise because of energy prices or right. when utilities face higher costs because of higher material prices or labor costs. So it becomes a very political situation when you have customer bills going up and that's essentially what happens for utilities when you have high inflation rates. All right. And even if they're able to raise customer, raise their prices, it's it's going to take months to, to do so. There's yeah, no, these are these, yeah. these are long drawn out and again political, contentious. 
types of uh, really almost legal right. types of uh, t types of events that they go through when they're trying to request rate increases. So that's right. a key part of the utility analysis that we look at is how constructive is the regulatory environment in a given state okay. where a utility operates. But just in general, they don't have the pricing power that you're going to see. You can think about it as fixed revenues, essentially. Yeah. No, okay. It's not not necessarily the exact case, but think about it that way in, uh, relative to certainly many other companies. Right. Okay. Now, so in your report, you highlighted a handful of the companies under your coverage, uh, three that you thought were somewhat um, well insulated, or at least relative to the rest of your coverage list uh, from higher inflation, and then three that seem particularly vulnerable to you right now. Can you discuss these? Yeah, so in terms of those best protected, and again, I have to say, no utilities okay. are well protected from inflation. This is a, mm -hmm. across the board a negative, right? Okay. But if you are looking for utilities and you want to look for some that might weather the storm, so to speak, better than others, look for utilities with constructive regulatory environments, Mm -hmm. Places where regulators have supported policies that allow utilities to pass through those higher costs to customers. Look for places where they have low energy costs. There's a wide range of energy costs across every state region in the U.S. Very Places where energy costs are very high for various reasons, very low for various reasons. So look for utilities in places with low energy costs. Those all else equal will keep customer bills lower. And then you're also looking for, for utilities that have different types of growth programs. So there are a lot of ways utilities can invest capital. Right? They can invest maintenance. They can invest in uh, the green. So they put a lot of stuff in that bucket, right? Renewable energy, clean energy, energy efficiency. Or they can invest in large power plants that maybe natural gas or coal, maybe not as environmentally friendly. So what we're doing is looking for utilities with constructive regulation, with good projects, and I put good in terms of support for projects, and then energy costs. So three names, Dominion Energy and Turgy. Okay. Dominion Energy is in the Virginia area, so they have a very constructive and 100% renewable energy target okay. in Virginia, so a lot of political momentum to support investment. And Turgy is in the southeast. So you think about what's going on in the southeast right now. Huge demand mm -hmm. for energy, not just from the U.S., but globally. So the southeast complex, industrial, oil, petroleum products, a lot of electricity demand down there. Entergy is at the center of that. So, and there tends to be pretty low energy costs down okay. there. So those are the two primary ones. Okay. Uh, Wisconsin Energy, a WEC Energy Group, WEC, that's another one where there's not as many great drivers, not like Entergy and Dominion, but they do have a, an excellent regulatory construct in Wisconsin. They have relatively low energy prices and uh, some, some decent support for renewable energy. Okay. And then you said there were uh, several that you thought were sort of the most vulnerable right now yeah. because of this higher inflation environment. Yeah, so if you take those positive and kind of flip that, okay. <laughs> right? Think about places where there's less constructive regulation, where utilities have had a tough time passing rate increases through to customers, oftentimes a very politicized regulatory environment. So you look for that. You look for places where utilities are spending a lot of capital without necessarily the political support behind it. And then 
third you're looking for also in terms of inflation and how investors are thinking about it, high valuations, right? So to the extent that inflation starts to hurt earnings, earnings growth, even dividend yields, having a more attractive valuation right now is going to be an inflation hedge. Okay. The opposite of that. So right? the higher. High valuations okay. are going to hurt utilities all else equal. So Eversource Energy mm -hmm. is one. They're up in Connecticut and Massachusetts. Very tough regulation, especially in Connecticut. Eversource has never had a very good time trying to pass through rates. Very tough and political environment there. High energy prices. That whole region heavily dependent on natural gas and even oil to produce electricity. And they're also doing a project with offshore wind right now. So they're going to be the largest offshore wind investor in the Northeast, ultimately. $5 billion they want to invest in offshore wind. These are not protected in terms of regulated rate type of investments. These are essentially themselves putting, the, the utilities putting capital into the ocean okay. and hoping they get a return on that. So there's some risk there. That there is risk. Okay. And, and inflation, we've seen inflation already hit all of the renewable energy segments substantially. Got it. Okay. Um, so you mentioned interest rates earlier. Mm -hmm. So I think it was on March 16th that the Fed announced a 25 basis point increase in the federal funds rate. I think that was the first rate increase we've seen in three years. Uh, but we also expect uh, multiple rate increases throughout 2022. Now, in your report, you spoke about uh, several things. One, that uh, higher interest rates can be a drag on utilities' earnings because it increased their borrowing costs. Uh, higher interest rates can also make the, the dividends, the yield of the uh, utilities less attractive to income-focused investors. Uh, on the flip side, uh, if these rate increases have their intended effect and actually tame inflation, that's, that's a positive for utilities. Yeah. So how do you see things shaking out over the next year uh, with these increasing interest rates and, and the utility sector? Yeah, it's, it's an interesting, again, like I said, confluence of events here, right? <laughs> yeah. So just taken separately, inflation would be bad. Taken separately, higher interest rates would be bad. Mm -hmm. Taken separately, higher energy costs would be bad, right? So all of these things, when you come together, again, what does it mean for utilities, right? The worst of them is inflation. Okay. So if you're going to rank kind of what's the worst thing that could happen to utilities is inflation. Interest rates is an interesting dynamic because we've been for the last two decades in such a low interest rate environment, we really don't know <laughs> right. what happens to utilities when you have interest rates that are in the three, four, in terms of the 10-year treasury, four, five percent range. We just haven't seen that for 20 plus years. So we think that's less of a threat, okay. higher interest rates. We're at such low interest rate levels right now. If you look over that last 20 years, you've actually had utilities increasing substantially the amount of debt on their balance sheet and capital investment, and you've had interest costs on their income statements going down. Okay. Investing more and your costs are going down in terms of interest. Utilities are the second largest borrowers of public traded debt behind banks. Okay. So anything, any incremental increase in interest rates will hit the bottom line. So what you were saying earlier, inflation is the number one enemy. Okay. So if, as the Fed has suggested, rising interest rates can solve the inflation problem and bring that down to 2 or 3%, then you have a net benefit okay. for utilities. But certainly there's no good situation where you have 
rising interest rates, inflation, and higher energy costs. All, all three. Great yeah. utilities. Yeah. Yeah. Got it. So um, I want to circle back to dividends because uh, almost all utilities under your coverage pay dividends, and many of them have fairly attractive yields. And if you look at the portfolios of many, if not most, uh, income or dividend-focused investors, you're going to see a fairly large, relatively large exposure to utilities. Um, just sort of looking at the sector as a whole in this higher inflation environment, um, do you believe that utility dividends are generally secure in this environment? Gen the utilities' dividends are very secure. Okay. <laughs> I have not said that for 15 years that I've been covering the sector. Okay. I have very, very strong confidence in the dividend payments. Okay. Now, the interesting part is one, dividend growth. Okay. And two, what's your real in terms of interest rate and inflation right. adjusted dividend yield? What we've seen here over the last 10 years or so, a huge dividend premium for utilities. And when we think about that, we plot it, the dividend yield for utilities versus the 10 year US Treasury yield. At some points here within the last couple of years, you've reached a 200 basis point premium. So Just because the treasury yield has been so low. Treasury yields have come down and utilities dividend yields have really stayed pretty strong. They've continued to grow. So you've continued to have utilities dividend yields above 3%, which is at times has been, again, 200 basis points above years. It's a huge premium. We haven't seen premiums like that in more than 30 and even 40 years of history. So utilities, in terms of their dividend yields, start in a really good spot. They start with a very good premium to interest rates. So again, one of the things where if interest rates were to go up, historically speaking, utilities are really still the only place to go for a very attractive dividend yield. Okay. Now inflation is the, would, would be the driver and higher interest costs would be the driver that could slow dividend growth. Okay. In terms of yield, still a very attractive yield, over 3% right now. Great. And um, just looking at uh, your coverage list as a whole, are there any names right now that you'd sort of think of as your picks from both a valuation and a, and a current yield standpoint? Yeah. So what we're telling people right now is pick a utility that has a 3.5% yield or greater. Again, I think yields right now and div dividends, uh, the actual dividends are very, very secure. You've got very strong balance sheets right now in the sector. A lot of that's because you've had low interest rates for a long time. So you look for a utility with over a 3% yield, 3.5 would be great. And you look for a utility that's going to grow and has political and regulatory support for 6 to 7% type earnings growth, okay. and then ultimately dividend growth. So the dividend growth could stay in line with that earnings growth. Yeah, yeah. we expect most of the dividend growth across the sector is going to be in line with earnings growth, and that's okay. going to range in the 5 to 6% if we just look generally. Now, what you want is the utility is going to grow faster mm -hmm. than that and has a more attractive yield. Okay. Are there any specific names that you'd sort of point out then that, that fall into that sort of category? Yeah, so a couple that we like. I mentioned Entergy. Right. So again, the Southeast utility, they yield well over 3% right now, and we think their growth is going to be in the 6 possibly even up to 8% type range between usage growth and all of the investments they're making in renewable energy in the Southeast. We also like NYSource. Okay. So this is a bit of an unusual pick. The valuation is a little more attractive. Again, well over a 3% yield. It's a gas utility 
primarily based in the Indiana and Midwest region, and also has a very large electric utility in Indiana. Now, you wouldn't necessarily think about Indiana as the center of green energy, <laughs> but they're actually one of the most progressive states in terms of moving from coal, which for many, many years has been the predominant energy source in Indiana, to winds. Uh, Indiana is obviously a very good place okay. for wind resource and even solar. So nice source is a good one in terms of a higher dividend yield, a more attractive valuation, and some really good earnings growth that could come out of especially the Indiana Electric Utility and also gas utilities doing uh, safety investments. Okay. That's great. Uh, Travis, thanks for being here and sharing sure. your insights. It's been yep. good talking to you. Thanks for having me. Next, Christine Benz from Morningstar Inc. and Susan Jabinski talk about rising interest rates and portfolios. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski from Morningstar. The markets have faced a number of headwinds so far in 2022, including the prospect of rising interest rates. Joining me to discuss what rising rates may mean for your portfolio is Christine Benz. She's Morningstar's Director of Personal Finance and Retirement Planning. Hi, Christine. Nice to see you. Hi, Susan. Great to see you. So let's start out um, by talking asset class by asset class. Many retirees hold cash, particularly if they follow a bucket strategy. And so what are we seeing in terms of cash accounts right now, cash yields? What are, what's a fair expectation there? Well, they're still really low. We haven't yet seen rising rates or worries over rising rates translate into higher yields on safe accounts like online savings accounts. CD rates have picked up a little bit. Uh, you can pick up a slightly higher yield if you're willing to buy a one-year or two-year CD. But generally speaking, savings rates are pretty low. And what we're hearing is that that's because banks and other institutions that take in savings have been flush with cash, that investors have done very well at saving during this period. And so they haven't needed to offer higher yields to compensate investors. I will, I do expect to see higher yields come online at some point in the future, but for now they're pretty low. I would say be patient. You still do want to hold some cash in your portfolio and remember that it's there to be your return of capital, not necessarily to provide you with return on capital. Yields are really, really quite low. Um, so then let's talk a little bit, let's go a, further, a little bit further out and talk about bonds. Um, you know, traditionally, we don't think of bonds as something that's going to hold up terribly well in a rising rate environment. So what have we seen on the bond front so far this year? Well, about like you'd expect, Susan, we've seen very poor performance across the spectrum of bonds so far in 2022. Uh, one thing we've seen is that longer-term bonds, especially high-quality long-term bonds, high-quality treasuries, for example, have really gotten walloped with the expectation of higher interest rates. Uh, we've seen shorter-term bonds hold up relatively better. Lower-quality bonds have actually held up reasonably well through this period as well. So um, the longer term you've been, the, the more you've seen in terms of red ink, in terms of your portfolio losses. So let's talk a little bit about the cash versus bond question then. So if, if it's you know, possible that rising interest rates could continue to ding bonds going forward, what's the argument of fa in favor of bonds versus cash today? It's a really good question, Susan. I know that investors are thinking a lot 
about this. And I would say one key thing is that if you're inclined to just move into cash and not hold any bonds, well, you're probably too late. We've already seen losses in bond funds. Um, but the other thing that I keep in mind is that it makes sense if, if you're holding bonds at all to match the duration of your bond fund with your anticipated holding period. And if you do that, I think that with bonds, you should be able to earn a slightly higher return than you can on cash investments. So you, if you have a time horizon of a couple of years, you'll probably out-earn cash in a short-term bond fund. If you have a time horizon of about five years, you'll probably out-earn short-term bonds with an intermediate-term bond fund. If you have a place for some sort of long-term bonds in your portfolio, you'll probably out-earn intermediate-term bonds if you have a, a holding period of, I would say, 10 years or so. So use that to guide how you invest. Certainly, if you have very near-term expenditures, you probably don't want to hold bonds because of the potential for these short-term principal baubles that we've seen as we've seen interest rates increase over the past year. So let's let's talk a little bit about the stock market, and it's certainly been a tumultuous past couple of months. And although I know it's hard to draw a one-to-one correlation, you know, what role has the idea of rising interest rates perhaps played in some of that stock market volatility? Do you think it's been one of the drivers? Absolutely. I think it's certainly been a contributor. My personal view is that a bigger contributor has been equity valuations coming into 2022. They were pretty stretched. We've seen growth stocks tumble. They, of course, were the most overvalued coming into this year. Value stocks have held up relatively better. So I would say it's been kind of that confluence of events, uh, an overvalued equity market, especially in certain pockets of the equity market, combined with this catalyst in the form of rising yields. So those have contributed to weak equity market returns so far this year. And incidentally, Susan, it's carried across uh, into non-U.S. stocks as well. We have been anticipating that non-U.S. stocks might perform better than U.S. at some point in time. But uh, where we are in early March here, we uh, really have seen losses equal to U.S. stocks on non-U.S. stocks so far this year. So given all of this, you know, given this backdrop, Christine, and, and the idea that rates are probably only going to go up, um, you know, how should investors be thinking about their portfolios today? Should they be looking to make big changes? Well, I think it really depends on what you've done with your portfolio over the past few years. I would say if you've been very hands-off, you've enjoyed strong equity market gains, that portion of your portfolio has probably grown. It may have grown beyond whatever parameters you set out for it. So you may want to scale back on stocks in your portfolio, even though stocks have already gotten knocked down a bit so far this year. I like the idea of people who are embarking on retirement holding anywhere from five to 10 years worth of portfolio withdrawals in safer investments, in cash, in bonds. If you haven't gone through that de-risking process and you're getting close to retirement or you're already retired, I don't think it's too late to do so. On the other hand, if you just rebalanced your portfolio at the end of 2021, you're probably just fine. You probably don't need to make any further changes to prepare yourself for rising interest rates. 
Well, Christine, thank you for your time today and for your portfolio perspective. We appreciate it. Thank you so much, Susan. I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. Thank you for tuning in. Lastly, Dave Sequeira from Morningstar Research Services shares his insights on rising interest rates effect on stocks and bonds. Hi, I'm Susan Jabinski with Morningstar. The Federal Reserve has begun to raise interest rates, and it's signal that there's more to come. Joining me today to talk about what rising interest rates may mean for the stock and bond markets is Dave Sequeira. Dave is Morningstar's chief U.S. market strategist. Hi, Dave. Hey, Susan. So let's dive right in and talk about the big picture. What do you see going on with interest rates in 2022? You know, we expect interest rates are going to continue to keep rising, you know, even from here. And I break that into, you know, two different parts of the yield curve. So there's the short-term part of the yield curve and the longer-term part of the yield curve. Now, in the short term, you know, we're looking at the Fed raising interest rates, the federal funds rates, you know, multiple times this year. And according to the Fed's projections, they're looking at getting up to about 2% by the end of this year. And in fact, next year, getting up to about 3%. So short-term rates going to be very correlated with the Fed's moves. Now, the longer-term interest rates are really going to be based more on the macroeconomic outlook than it is going to be on the Fed's necessarily short-term rate movements. So we're looking at a couple different factors there. So first is inflation. Now, inflation is running hot. We expected it to run hot at the beginning of this year, but now with the conflict in Ukraine and seeing some of the spikes in commodity prices, you know, inflation is going to be running hotter you know, than what we originally had thought. Now, we still expect it to moderate you know, in the second half of this year, but we did recently bump up our inflation forecast for this year to 4.3%. But then we do expect it to come down below 2% next year and then average about 2% thereafter. Now, historically, long-term interest rates do have a term premium over inflation. So that actually probably brings us up to about 3% now that area you know, once we get back to more of a normalized environment. You know, the other part I'd mentioned, too, is that you know, we do look at the market-implied inflation expectations. So on the shorter term, there is the five-year break-even rate, and we've seen that going up. And in fact, I believe that's at its highest level you know, over the past 20 years. And then looking at longer-term inflation expectations, we look at what's known as the five-year, five-year forward break-even rate. So again, what that does is that measures what the inflation expectations are for five years, starting five years you know, into the future. You know, and finally, the other thing that I'm watching, too, is that the Federal Reserve you know, had had their asset purchase program for you know, about two years you know, since the beginning of the pandemic and just recently ended that purchase program. You know, this summer, we're waiting for more information from the Fed as far as what their plans are to do with you know, the huge balance sheet that they now currently have. So we do expect that they'll probably start selling off you know, some of the bonds on their balance sheet you know, later this year. And that will certainly change you know, the supply-demand characteristics in the bond market as well. So let's talk a little bit more about bonds. Um, let's say you know I'm an investor who wants to be focused on high-quality bonds. Mm -hmm. Where on the yield curve should I think about being if what I'm trying to do is mitigate my interest rate risk? You know, so we have seen a pretty big bump up in short-term interest rates because of the movements, you know, from the Fed. So again, if you really want to completely minimize, you know, any interest rate risk, of course, you'd have to stay at the very short end, you know, of the yield curve. But I think investors right now can go a little bit further out the yield curve and get that additional yield pickup. And so I'd look at what we call like the middle of the curve, maybe around that five-year point today. I think that's probably going to be the best risk-reward trade-off for investors. 
So let's talk a little bit about um, investors who may be willing to dip a toe or maybe more than a toe in the corporate bond market. Um, maybe looking, tell us a little bit about where you see, you know, higher quality corporate bonds versus junk today. Sure. Well, maybe what we should start off is just make sure that people realize that there is a difference between what's called investment grade bonds or high yield bonds, also known you know, as junk bonds. So those bonds that are high yield or junk are rated below investment grade. So those would be double B plus or lower by the rating agencies. They do have you know, higher default risk, higher credit risk than those investment grade bonds, which are rated you know, triple B minus you know, or better. Now, we have seen corporate credit spreads widen this year. You know, a lot of that is due to you know, the situation and the conflict you know, that we've seen in the Ukraine and some of the global macroeconomic risks you know, that we're seeing there. But I do think that investors are well paid for taking on that additional corporate credit risk today. Now, I still recommend staying in kind of that middle duration area. Investment grade bonds typically have longer duration profiles, so I'd want to stick into those you know, medium duration you know, funds and in investment grade. High yield bonds typically have shorter maturities. They also have those higher yields. So that naturally keeps their duration risk a little bit lower than investment grade. You know, in the high yield market, I think you're getting paid pretty well for the corporate credit risk you're taking today. Large part of that is because we have a differentiated view for you know, economic growth this year. So according to our US you know, economics team, you know, we are looking at above consensus economic growth, not just this year, but actually for the next three years mm -hmm. compared to you know, the rest of the street. So in an environment where you do have you know, rising economic growth, again, it'll be slower than what we saw last year. But on a historical basis, it's still going to be relatively robust. You know, that's going to keep defaults you know, relatively low. It's going to keep downgrades relatively low. And in fact, you know, in an environment like that, I would actually expect to see you know, more upgrades than downgrades. All of that, to me, would bode well for high-yield bonds. Interesting. So what about, um, let's pivot and talk a little bit about the stock market and stocks in general. You know, growth stocks, you know, for a part of this year have gotten smacked around a little bit. Um, and that's due, I'm assuming, in part to the anticipation of rising interest rates. So let's talk a little bit about growth stocks and value stocks in rising rate environments in general. Sure. And so just, you know, to make sure that everyone is kind of aware, you know, we do a discounted cash flow model in order to come up with our valuations. So essentially, we're projecting out you know, how much cash we think a company is going to earn over its lifetime. We then discount that using a weighted average cost of capital, you know, to come up with our present value today. So in that model, you know, how much that interest rate is that you use to discount that is going to have a big impact on what you think that company is worth today. Now, in the marketplace, yeah, we did see interest rates come down you know, very substantially you know, during the pandemic. You know, they've risen off their lows. But I don't think the market and we ourselves never brought our risk-free rate in that weighted average cost of capital down to as far or as low as the market had gotten. So I still think that at this point, I think the sell-off in growth stocks this year has really been much more to do with valuation than it necessarily was to do with the rising interest rates you know, that we've seen. So, for example, you know, I think growth stocks have bottomed out you know, maybe about two weeks ago. Now, growth stocks have actually had a pretty good rebound since then, but over that exact same time period, interest rates have also been rising. So we came into the year saying that we thought the market was broadly overvalued and specifically growth stocks were overvalued. We had a webinar recently on our views you know, of what was going on with the Ukrainian conflict and how that was impacting markets. Had noted at that point in time the growth stocks had actually fallen so far, they got to the point that they were now you know, hitting the kind of undervalued territory you know, in our models. 
So going forward, we still think that growth stocks are a little bit undervalued here, and we still think there's a lot of opportunities for investors there. We also still think that value stocks, which came into the year being slightly undervalued, they've actually held their own. I believe they're up you know, one or two percent year to date, are also you know, a good area for investors. The one area I'd still shy away from are what we call core stocks. So those stocks that have a blend of both you know, growth characteristics mm -hmm. and value characteristics, generally we think they're still you know, a little bit overvalued today. Interesting. Um, let's talk a little bit about sectors. You know, what might investors expect from a sector perspective when it comes to going into a rising rate environment? Sure. So, well, as we talked about, you know, growth stocks in a true rising rate environment, you know, certainly would have you know, a lot of headwinds as far as their valuations as interest rates continue to rise. You know, based on my own modeling at this point, I do think interest rates can probably rise a good, you know, 50 to 75 basis points from here before we really start to see interest rates really impacting the present value of those stocks. So again, we think growth right now is you know, slightly undervalued. Technology stocks also slightly undervalued. But those would be the ones that I'd be most concerned about you know, later this year if we continue to see interest rates rise. You know, if the 10-year, for example, really starts getting much closer to that 3% area, that's where I start thinking we see you know, interest rates really impacting the valuation of those stocks. You know, value stocks, again, I think they have good economic tailwinds behind them for later this year. And those are stocks where the value of those stocks is much more stable than growth stocks because the valuation is going to be based on you know, the earnings of that company you know, over the next couple of years, whereas, of course, you know, growth stocks, the value of those stocks is how much those earnings are going to be you know, in the future. So bottom line, you know, given where valuations are today, Dave, and as well as this backdrop of rising interest rates, hot inflation, maybe a little bit of uncertainty about the economy, where should investors, if they have some money to put into the market today, what, what do you think? What, what would you suggest? Well, based on the composite of all the equity analysts' fair values for those stocks that we cover that trade on U.S. exchanges, we do think the U.S. stock market, broadly speaking, is trading at a slight discount to our fair values you know, after this market pullback. However, I would note that I still would urge caution for investors, just and I do think that there is still the potential for a lot more volatility in the marketplace you know, with the ongoing conflict you know, in the Ukraine. And until that's resolved, I do think that we're going to see you know, a lot of these you know, large daily movements both to the upside and the downside you know, based on headlines coming out of there. Now, when I look at the different sectors that we cover, you know, the communications sector is by far the most undervalued sector in today's marketplace. And that's a combination of both you know, some of the you know, large technology stocks that are really in the communications sector. So when I'm looking at our valuations there, you know, over half the sector index you know, is comprised of both you know, Alphabet, the parent of Google, as well as Meta, the parent of Facebook. You know, those are two stocks that we both think are very significantly undervalued. But the communications sector also has a more you know, traditional type of names in there that we see a lot of value for investors today. You know, AT&T is one that we've you know, talked about and written about in the past that we see you know, good catalysts for unlocking shareholder value there. The next most undervalued sector is going to be in consumer cyclical. And I think the theme there that we're really looking for is you know, economic normalization in the second half of this year. And as the pandemic you know, continues to recede, you're looking at consumer behavior shifting back towards you know, pre-pandemic types of spending patterns, going back you know, into the services spending, away from goods spending. And as I think about that, you know, looking at those sectors specifically that have been under a lot of pressure during the pandemic, you know, getting a lot of that business back you know, over the course of you know, the second half of this year and into next year. 
Now, the one thing I would caution investors is that, yeah, we've been big proponents of the energy sector for about two years now, and that was really the sector that we had thought was, you know, the most undervalued. Now, it rose, I think, 55 percent, you know, according to our index last year. It's over, you know, 30 percent return this year. So after those runs, we now think that energy is, you know, fully valued and in a number of cases actually starting to get to be overvalued as well. So I just note for investors, after those kind of returns, you might actually see that your portfolio is going to be, you know, overweight in the energy sector right now. So I would actually think that now is probably a pretty good time to look to move back to more of a market weight position in energy from where you might otherwise be. Well, Dave, thank you so much for your perspective today and for these investment ideas. We appreciate it. I'm Susan Javinsky with Morningstar. Thanks for tuning in. That does it for this week's Investing Insights podcast from Morningstar. We hope you have enjoyed our program and we welcome your feedback. Please send your comments and questions to podcast at Morningstar.com. From everyone here at Morningstar, thanks for listening. This recording is for informational purposes only and should not be considered investment advice. Opinions expressed are as of the date of recording. Such opinions are subject to change. The views and opinions of guests on this program are not necessarily those of Morningstar Inc. and its affiliates. Morningstar and its affiliates are not affiliated with this guest or his or her business affiliates unless otherwise stated. Morningstar does not guarantee the accuracy or the completeness of the data presented herein. The podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be considered tax advice. Please consult a tax and or financial professional for advice specific to your individual circumstances. Morningstar Research Services LLC is a subsidiary of Morningstar Inc. and is registered with and governed by the U.S. Securities and Exchange Commission. Morningstar Research Services shall not be responsible for any trading decisions, damages, or other losses resulting from or related to the information, data analysis, or opinions or their use. Past performance is not a guarantee of future results. All investments are subject to investment risk, including possible loss of principal. Individuals should seriously consider if an investment is suitable for them by referencing their own financial position, investment objectives, and risk profile before making any investment decision.